The way we take care of ourselves is ever evolving. And what we know for sure is that our mind and spirit are linked to our physical body and that our wellness seems to extend into our communities and the planet we all share. It is very, very clear that wellness is interconnected. We love spending time with you to explore and practice the breakthroughs, the insights, and the passions of incredible people helping us all see the world in a whole new light. This is HealthGig. Dr. Alan Sussman, MD, is a board-certified endocrinologist and clinical assistant professor at the University of Washington. He's the co-founder and president of Rainier Clinical Research Center, and he's been involved with hundreds of evidence-based studies and the development of groundbreaking technology for the treatment of diabetes. Dr. Sussman is the author of the book, Saving the Art of Medicine, Observations of a Practitioner. So, Dr. Sussman, welcome to HealthGig. Well, all right, thank you for having me here. I'm very interested in our conversation we will have. We are too. Thanks for being here. We're very excited to be having Dr. Alan Sussman on our podcast today. He's just written a book called Saving the Art of Medicine that talks about all kinds of things, including Dr. Sussman, your progression and evolution as a physician from bookish to mindful to heartfelt. So we want to hear your story and why you've written this book. It's a legacy. I've had a very eclectic career where I started as all medical students do, bookish, learning about the information that's there. And now the information's only gotten more and more and more complex all the time. And that doesn't make a good physician, but it's a foundation. Then once I get in practice, I'm dealing with patients on a regular basis. And I realize that's what medicine is about. It's not about the book learning. It's not about that information, which is important in order to have some background and some direction to go to, but ultimately it's the relationship between me and the patient. And I've had simply wonderful, wonderful relationships with patients for decades. In fact, they probably are responsible for the book being written. I retired. They said to me, so when is the book coming out? I didn't realize there was a book coming out. <laughs> and during my time as being a physician, not only did I develop these great relationships that were very important for me and for them, but I also became more in touch with a more heartfelt sense of myself, which was compassion, wider pictures of just what we're talking about, but how it all relates to the world in general, to a sense of unity. There's almost sometimes a spiritual part that can come into it. I became, as they say, holistic. And I was involved in various different holistic matters, including alternative medicine. And I was on a commission for two years from the state of Washington, where we were trying to decide what the commonalities and how allopathic medicine, medicine as it's practiced in general, works with alternative medicine. And I'm a true believer in that all means of information and systems of belief need to be considered in a healthcare encounter. And why now? Why are you telling your story now? Partially it is. I did retire on not a very elegant matter. It was a question of COVID. 
COVID allowed me to have a lot of time to think and to reflect. I have a beautiful property out here, and I would be outside, and I was just thinking about my life and uh, talking to other people who've always said, "Is you, you've done some fairly unique things in your life, and it would be worthwhile to try to spread the word or to let it out. And that's probably was the main main reason why. Also grateful to you for doing that. Thank you. So, Dr. Sussman, what are the advantages and drawbacks of evidence-based medicine? I spent a lot of time with evidence-based medicine. I also had a research, clinical research company, and have been involved in hundreds of studies. So I am well-versed, and I'm not anti-evidence-based medicine, but there's an imbalance right now of what's going on. And there's a misunderstanding about evidence-based medicine and that when people hear evidence-based medicine, that means that's what the truth is. And evidence-based medicine comes from science. Science does not actually say what truth is. It actually looks to say what is false, what does not work. And every time I say something does not work, you get closer to understanding what it is. So you always have to have a little bit of humility with the information you have with evidence-based medicine that it's different particulate matters of information that are important, but it's not the answer. It's a direction. It's a path in life. What you end up with is guidelines. With guidelines, guidelines say uh, our group of experts that get together and they look at the information and they say, these are conclusions we're going to come to, but they're guidelines. A guideline is not saying what is definitely true. It is a way of looking at things. So the importance of evidence-based medicine is that it gives you some foundation. But what it doesn't do is give you the truth. It gives you a way of looking at things. And the problem with evidence-based medicine is it's based on objectivity. Well, when you really think of it, it's pretty hard for human beings doing a study to be absolute objective. They have their own biases of what's going on. Sometimes they believe in a certain belief system, and so they only look at things in a certain way and not in others. So it has to be put in a relative situation. So there's biases is one important thing. Another thing just in general is what's called outcome bias, which means when you look at journals and you look at the articles that are there, what do they want to publish? Well, articles that support their point of view. If they're doing work that doesn't, they're not as excited about reporting it. Like the news media too, right? It has to be something more sensational that gets there, not the ordinary. And so you get biases is what goes on with it. So like some of the new drugs that are coming out with like the weight loss stuff, like Ozempic and all of those, can you talk about that? I definitely can. (laughs) Again, The best way for weight loss is always to work with yourself and to understand what you can do to help yourself. Well, I've been involved with morbidly obese people, genetic causes, and all sorts of other reasons why people can be overweight. They can try their best effort and it won't work. And so medication has a role, but again, pharmaceuticals are very powerful agents and you're changing the body by doing that. And we only have a certain idea of how much it's changing it 
And we don't always know what all the side effects are going to be or long-term effects with it. There is a lot of information coming out that sometimes you're losing the wrong type of weight in terms of fat and muscle as well. And how can you try to balance that out? And that probably is true too. So weight loss is important. But even now, this measurement that's called a BMI about your body weight is being relegated to a lesser status now as maybe being overused as a health measure for what's going on. And you have to look at the total health of the person. But these new agents are good. And my own belief, and it seems to be true, you have to use combinations too. Using one agent does not work as well as two. But then you're pushing the body one way, you're trying to prevent it from going another way. It's hard to imagine how that always leads to a perfect balance. It leads to effect, but is it the best thing for the body all the time? You know, how can doctors meaningfully connect with patients when the healthcare system does push profit over patient care? And you talk a lot about that, right? Absolutely. I don't think I can change institutions. I think institutions make incremental changes on a very small basis over time. And ultimately, when you have a healthcare encounter, it's the patient and the doctor. And so it's a question of them feeling secure in themselves and working in a relationship that is the most important part. Physicians have to go past the point of just looking at the financial part. And particularly these days, they do. Most of them are employed now, but then they have pressures put on them of what they have to do to keep employed, so to speak. So there is an integrity factor here, and it's a sense of the reason why people become doctors, because they want to help people. They usually start on a very positive way of looking at what they want to do. The system might not be helping them. So they have to work on themselves. And another thing that I think is very important is doctors need to take care of themselves. Self-care is very important for physicians. And some of that has improved. When I was in training as intern and resident, we had to work up to 120 hours a week. Now that's insane. That's insane, yeah. Yeah. And it's not healthy. No. And in the three years I was in New York City as an intern and resident, I was on the committee. We were unionized, and we actually went on strike on a very limited basis, asking for a 100-hour week, and it didn't work at that wow. point. Eventually, it did. You do put an emphasis on caring for your patients, not curing. What are some of the tools that you use with cultivating these relationships with patients? Beautiful question. As one part of the book, I talk about caring, not curing. There's also a quotation from Dr. Peabody a hundred years ago saying, the secret of the care of the patient is in the caring. So it's a more mindful, heartfelt view that needs to be instilled to be there. A ways of doing that is that the physician has to have good intention and intention of what they're doing in terms of what do they want to get out of the visit. And if the answer is, I'm going to cure someone, well, as we all know, people have all sorts of disorders, chronic, otherwise, that can't be cured. But that doesn't mean that the patient can't be cared for. 
And sometimes by just caring, listening, and particularly showing compassion for patients, that is the most important part. And some of the most important interactions I had with patients were times where one could say, what did you do? Nothing really happened at the end, but the patient felt really good at the end of it. They were listened to, and that's one of the important parts, listening to the patient and trying to listen to the patient without bias, because we all have our biases, but to really try to understand and be, and important word is be, just be with the patient. And there are times I would just be with the patient, 15, 20 minutes, whatever the visit was, and at the end, they would thank me. And then the most difficult part of the whole visit would be, I then had to come up with some code of what I was going to charge insurance for and if what we did was to be used as a code, it would never work. So it's almost two different languages is what you're saying, right? Like the, the medical system speaks this and you need a code and you do it this way. And you as an individual now kind of leading with your heart and with your mind and compassion, as you say at the beginning, the education, the book stuff is beginning to take a little bit of a back seat. I mean, it's there. It has to be there. It has to be there. You can't even be where you are without that and all your experience. But yeah, how do you blend it is what you're answering. And the thing is, that's a natural human quality. We know when we're having a good conversation with someone, when you're feeling good about where things are going. And the interesting thing is when it's tried to be looked at, even on a scientific basis, which obviously can be very difficult because you're talking about subjective feelings, there's evidence that it makes a difference in outcomes. Purely, you can give someone a medication and it can also be a question of how you present it and how well the medication will work. Because you talk about the mind playing the part, the placebo effect in a way? The placebo effect, which, right, as you sort of said, in a way, because everyone <laughs> sort of shrugs their shoulders yeah, a little yeah. bit. You see, this is why I want to get rid of the word placebo. Okay. Because when you hear placebo, yeah. somewhere in your mind is the idea is, we're talking about something that that's not real. Yes. That's really not doing anything, but it's there. But it's there, and, right. <laughs> and what I'm saying is, it's actually an integral part of healthcare. So among other things, I want to change the word placebo. I came up with an acronym, TIP, which stands for Therapeutic Interventional Potential. Ah, that's oh, good. I love the word potential. <laughs> potential. And yes. I just like the idea is that a patient can say is, I'm now going to give you a tip. Oh, yes. that's good. Yes. Oh, that's good. How did you get into mindfulness? What sparked your interest there? It was a journey. And the story is that you have to make something good out of something that wasn't. I ended up with a very severe injury where I cut eight tendons on my right hand. Oh. And the details of it uh, horrify people when I tell them about it, so I won't go into details. Okay, good. Uh, besides having young kids and the practice, I was a very avid tennis player and uh, wow. played piano. And you can't do that with, with the hand I have now. Over a year and a half of having surgeries and seeing what could be done, I realized that wasn't going to happen. And some friends had started this men's group that in the past, I always says, I can't do it. I don't have time. Suddenly, I had time, and I started going to men's group, and that got me involved in meditation work. 
it fit perfectly for my being and who I am. And I ended up going to all sorts of different retreats, seeing the Dalai Lama uh, oh. several times, actually, uh, involved in healthcare meditation groups that I even started and have some good friends that are well-known consultants in the world for doing uh, meditation work and just learn more and more the benefit of that. I'm not trying to promote saying is if you're not meditating, you're not going to be living life right. I'm just saying meditation has parts to it that, as you were asking about, that leads to a sense of mindfulness, of intention and attention to what's going on, and a sense of humility of what's going on, as well as compassion. And I think those words are important to decide how you as an individual can work with that. And that works actually both ways. It's for the physician and the patient. The patient has to try to promote those parts, including even having some compassion for physicians. Yes, yes, both ways. You know, you also talk about, and maybe this is what you're saying with this mindfulness mindset, the idea that traditional medicine looks at our body parts and we treat our body parts. Like we have pancreatic cancer, we have lung cancer, we have this cancer, we have this disease. What do you miss by labeling things so specifically when you're not looking at it as treating the human body as a whole? Again, one of the stories in the book studies that I just find uh, marvelous to discuss with this, it's the gorilla suit story. And this is a psychology study that was done where they had about 10 people in pairs passing basketballs back and forth. And then they would have the subjects who were going to be watching three or four basketballs being passed around 10 people. And they said, well, this is a very important study. We want you to tell us the exact number of times that the basketball is passed. So there had to be a lot of intention put on a very focused part of what's going on. While this is going on, a person in a gorilla suit walks right through the middle of the crowd of all what's going on and the other side, and about 50% of the people never saw the gorilla. That's what can happen in science, too, is science is very specific in what it's doing. One term I use is called rigor and rigidity. They're very rigorous, so that they're really trying to present something, but they're very rigid in terms of very specific particulate part. So it's little pieces of a puzzle, but it's not the puzzle. And very often, then, it might forget about the whole puzzle, what's there. You're just with the parts. And I feel what's important is you have to look at the whole part that's there. One of the chapters in your book talks about the mystery of death and beyond. Can we talk a little bit about that? Trisha and I found that part of your book compelling. Yes, to me, it is an important part of the book. There is a lot of different parts to it. People get more involved usually with the other ones more than this. Over my whole time as being a physician and maybe just being a human being, I've just learned a lot about life through dying and death. There are a lot of different synchronicities that can happen at the time that just say that that's odd. I don't know why that happened. Each one by itself, you can say, oh, well, sure, those things will happen. But the first time I had an experience that maybe just scratched my head a little bit was I had a patient who was dying. And he was a diabetic, 
I had known him for a group of years, and he had never really followed what I was telling him to do. Quite frankly, I don't think he ever was able to really understand it that well or felt like he could relate to it. He ended up eventually in the hospital with a lot of diabetic complications and needing an amputation. This was years and years ago. There wasn't such things as even hospice at that time. He was in the hospital, and he was, he was going to die. And eventually he became, for all purposes that I can see, comatose. And I would get calls from the hospital unit that he was on from the nurses saying, we can't get a pulse, we don't hear a heartbeat, but it doesn't seem that he's passed yet. And they kept on saying, what should we do? What should we do? And I said, well, I'll come over there. And I know he was going to die. I didn't make it an emergency. I came over that evening to see him. And there was this very shallow type of breath that might be there, but it was very shallow. No other really movements. This idea suddenly came to me. Maybe he didn't know he can die. Strange idea. But so I took his hand and I said to him, it's okay for you to go. That was his last breath. Literally. So he had that control, that sense of what was there. I've had my mother-in-law who had metastatic cancer, and I was peripherally involved with her care still. She was kept in a nursing home. My wife's family was there, and I had to go for a couple of days to a meeting, and I assumed there's no way she would be around when I came back. And I just sort of told her when I left, but I hope that she was comfortable and that I'm glad to see that she's surrounded by her whole family. I came back and was amazed to see that she was still alive in a coma. And within a hour of me coming back is when she passed. And, she and I just waiting. knew this woman well, that she was always caring for everybody else. And I almost had this feeling that she wanted me to be there. Oh, and she yeah. wasn't going to pass until there. So I think there's a transition part that I think is very real, and I think it could be helpful for people to be aware of that when people are dying, and also realize that it is a process that isn't necessarily always to be feared, but is to be sort of accepted as another part of your whole life's journey at that point, and that there might be other mysterious parts to it. What do you mean by other mysterious parts with it? What exactly happens? Are we just material beings? When we talk about spirituality and spirit beings, maybe a sense of unity, there are a lot of people that maybe even say poo-poo it. They just don't want to look at it. Science has a good deal of difficulty with it because it's ethereal, not anything that they can measure. And it's almost if you can't measure it, it can't be there. But I think as there are so many millions of people that have had experiences that have to do with death and dying, I've had at least one good friend who had a near-death experience and how that changed her life, that I'm not certain that there aren't other, other ways of looking at life in a non-materialistic way that has validity, and if nothing else, it could have an important meaning for us all. So how can doctors get trained in transitioning people into death? How can we teach doctors the importance of that? 
hospital systems and medical systems have evolved to try to be involved with death and die, particularly in the hospice range, right? And that gives some framework from what's there. But I agree with you, it would be good if it can be down to the every individual being open and aware to what's possible. And probably the most important word to use is the word, be open to it. Because we all have our belief systems and we get trapped in them to some extent and we can't see anything outside of them. So how can we open ourselves up to the other idea? Because I think we can find other areas that not only might have truth, but as I said, meaning. That's all that counts. Is it the best way for us to look at the time of death is that's done? What's your experience with near-death experiences? This one woman who I've known for many, many years, she was a uh, NIH, National Institute of Health, PhD physicist. That sounds like someone that has a pretty deep scientific background <laughs> right? and will have a certain amount of skepticism about non-materialistic matters. She had this heavy glass mirror that fell on her and she was clinically dead when they found her. There was no pulse, no evidence of any activity at all. She did come back. And she did vividly explain the journey that she went on. And there are books that are written about this too that shows a certain amount of commonality of experiences going to the light and going through a tunnel. She then gave up her position as a physicist. She had done some meditation work before that and then became a healer at a distance. You're talking about an area that really is going to scratch your head. Yeah. Is healing at a distance. She's been on different TV programs, et cetera, as well as having a very, very thriving practice of helping people without even not even being there. Again, that which really gets into this whole idea to me is what type of communication do we have between ourselves? Because she seems to affect some changes, but it's a very difficult area for science to get around because it's a very hard thing how you could design a study to really show that in that way. And I'm not certain that's the best way to do it. Are you afraid to die? No, because I look at my dying as part of my life. I would like, I would hope that dying could be a nice transition into whatever. I don't know. I don't know. But I think there could be more sense of fear or a need to grasp on to different parts of yourself, like your ego, if you're saying, this is it, I'm done now, right? <laughs> right. right? And, and that could be pretty fearful saying, you know, I'm done. Why well, saying this is just a, I, I guess the word I like using is transition, transitioning to something else. Now, what happens afterwards? I leave that to other people's <laughs> experience to say what that is. I don't know. I love the way you end the book. And you say, in the end, love and connection are all that count. Isn't that the truth? It's one of those words. The word love, I think, is extremely important and powerful. Yet it is a word that is very often hard to use in conversation and can be misunderstood instead of the pure meaning of what it is, of love, of a sense of 
interconnection that I care for you, you care for me, I care for this group, you care for that group, and then it gets bigger and bigger so that love can expand with that. I fear there are a lot of people that are afraid to go there. It's a little bit where they get stuck in their own little world, and they're afraid to really let everybody in. Well, Dr. Sussman, wow. Thank love. you. Yeah, that's a great way to end this because it is about love and connection. I yes. love ending with that too. Yes. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Dr. Sussman, for joining us on Health Gig. I enjoyed it immensely. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doral. Be well.